Good to see everybody out this morning, as was mentioned. I want to encourage everybody to have a Bible handy as we get into our lesson this morning. We'll have a few of the passages of Scripture that we want to consider up on the screen, but we'll be turning and reading several as well. We're going to begin in Acts 26. Verses 27 to 32 is what we're going to notice here, where Paul is giving his defense before King Agrippa. And in verse 27, he addresses the king and he asks him, Do you believe the prophets? He says, I know that you do believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he'd said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. When they'd gone aside, they talked among themselves. They said, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So I use this passage, this example, because it more or less sets the tone for the thoughts that we want to consider together this morning. The idea of a particular attitude that I think we sometimes see expressed throughout the scriptures that while to a degree is noble, but at the same time falls short of really what a person ought to be doing. Agrippa here obviously had a background in the law of Moses. He understood the prophecies of Christ, but yet he was only almost persuaded. And we have a song in our hymn book that we often sing as a means of invitation that borrows from this very passage, almost persuaded. title of the lesson is Apothegrity. Now, you won't find that in the dictionary because I made that up. Uh, but it's a combination of two different words that we do know. One is apathy, where somebody is just devoid of care, interest. And the other is integrity. And that's somebody who is committed to doing the right thing regardless of the circumstances. But oftentimes it seems that, like we said, there's characters in the Bible and what we ultimately want to think about is how we can be guilty of this as we look at some examples where somebody might have some nobility about them. They might have a good idea or make some kind of an effort to do the right thing, but they don't quite go as far as they should. When a certain degree of pressure is put upon them to you know, let up on this righteousness kick, they indeed let up and they don't follow through as they should. And I think sometimes we can be guilty of that. We can Consider ourselves to be men and women of integrity, but then in certain circumstances, when certain pressures are put upon us, maybe we don't quite follow through with what we know we should do or should say. 
And so we want to consider some examples this morning that I think will help us to think about this concept and whether or not we are guilty of this in our own lives. The first example that we're going to consider is back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. Brother by the name of Reuben. The story that we're going to be considering in Genesis 37 is one that I'm sure is very familiar to most of us. Genesis chapter 37, we read about Joseph, and we read about how he was the favored son of his father. Remember how his father... Uh, made him the coat of many colors, and Joseph was not only kind of despised by his other brothers because of the coat, as an example, but you remember Joseph also had these dreams that he dreamed, which were uh, prophetic in the sense of they were foretelling what was going to play out over the course of Joseph's life and his relationship with his family. Uh, but at the time, you know, Joseph is talking about how, you know, all the rest of you are going to bow down to me. That's the dream that I had. And they're like, you know, who are you, right? Why, why should we be bowing down to you? And so they all resented Joseph because he was favored by his father. And, you know, he had these dreams where he was explaining that he was superior to his brothers. And so it gets to the point where his brothers have more or less had enough of this. And they, they make this plot to get rid of Joseph. But we're going to see as the story plays out that one of his brothers is not so eager to follow through with these plans that his other brothers have made. And he makes some attempt to persuade them otherwise, to... Uh, let go of these evil plans that they've come up with, but ultimately he doesn't really follow through to the point that he actually delivers Joseph out of harm's way. So let's read a portion of this together. We'll start in verse 18. Again, of Genesis chapter 37, we'll read down through verse 34. So Joseph is going to find his brothers who are off tending the herds, and it says that when they saw him afar off, so he's coming near to the point where they can now make him out across the hills there, and uh, before he came near to them, it says they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we'll just say that some wild beast has devoured him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. You see the intense jealousy that had developed in their hearts. So Reuben heard it, verse 21. And notice it says, he delivered him out of their hands. He said, let us not kill him. Reuben said, shed no blood. But he also kind of went along to a degree, you see. He said, well, we'll just cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness. Uh, but we're not going to lay a hand on him. And now you notice it tells us here that the thinking of Reuben at this time anyway is that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So he's thinking, well, you know, I'll kind of go along with this. I'll let them throw him in this pit, but then later on I can go back and I can get him out and take him home, right? So he's looking out for his brother, even though he's a part of these dreams that have been dreamt by Joseph as, as much as the others. Uh, he's a little bit more mature, it seems. 
So it came to pass, verse 23, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, uh, the same tunic of many colors that his father had given him. They took him and they cast him into the pit. And it says that the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they went and they sat down to eat a meal. And they lifted their eyes and they looked and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices and balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he's our brother and our flesh. And so his brothers listened. So Judah obviously been persuaded a little bit by Reuben's attempts, agrees that killing him doesn't make all that much sense, and you know he starts to think about, well, this is our, our brother here. We, we probably shouldn't do that, but yet we can still get rid of him, right? <laughs> we can make some money in the process. So verse 28 says, the Midianite traders passed by, and the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And so Joseph was taken down to Egypt. And it says, then Reuben returned to the pit. So evidently Reuben wasn't there when all these things took place. You know, he had said his piece and then evidently went off with a certain part of the herd or something. And he was away from them when Joseph had been cast into the pit and then obviously sold. So he goes back to this pit and he sees Joseph's not there. And he tears his clothes and he returned to his brothers. He said, the lads no more. Where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, dipped the tunic in the blood, and they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it. He said, It is my son's tunic. Wild beasts has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And Jacob, uh, Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. Now, it doesn't give us too many details here as to how much Reuben was informed of as far as what had happened, but it would seem that the brothers had explained to him, look, he's not actually dead, this is what we did. And then he goes along with this further plot to deceive their father into thinking that he was indeed killed. Now you jump over a few pages to chapter 42, and you recall that at this point in the narrative, uh, many years have gone by. Joseph is now in a place of power in Egypt. He's second in command under Pharaoh. Uh, there were these years of drought, and then the years, or I should say the years of plenty, and then the years of drought that followed. And Joseph had been put in charge of storing up the grain during those years of plenty so that the land would not perish uh, during the years of the drought. So obviously during that period of time, uh, people from other lands who are also affected by the drought, they're coming to Egypt because they hear tale that, well, you know, they prepared for this and, and there's grain there so we can go and buy. And who comes along but uh, these brothers of Joseph who had sold him into slavery. And they come there looking for that very thing. And so obviously a lot of things play out there. But I want us to notice in chapter 42, and verse 22, because at this point, they're, they're starting to think that all this trouble that they're starting to have is, is because of God paying them back for the way they treated Joseph all those years ago. And you notice that Reuben said on that occasion, 
He says, didn't I speak to you saying, don't sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. So all these years later, Reuben is, is still, I guess, trying to feel better about himself. He says, you know, I told you not to do that. <laughs> but if you go back all the way and you look at everything that plays out, even though he had the right mindset and he was, he was trying to do the right thing, he really didn't follow through to the point where he actually saved his brother from harm, did he? You know, he could have, when he went off from his other brothers, he could have taken Joseph with him, said, you stay with me so that, you know, nothing happens to you. And he could have went another, another mile, the extra mile to make sure that the right thing was accomplished and the wrong thing was avoided. So I think we can learn a lesson from that. You know, sometimes we might say something, but we don't actually take it to the degree where we're acting on what we know to be right and, and actually preventing something bad from happening or doing something good when something good needs done. We can have this apathegrity, this blend of the two things. Another example that I thought of is in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it concerns Eli and his sons. So jump ahead there to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to kind of jump down through this chapter, noticing a number of different verses for the sake of time. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, and first of all, we're going to notice in verse 12, it tells us there that the sons of Eli were corrupt. And it says that they did not know the Lord. And you jump down to verse 22, and it says that Eli was very old, and he heard everything that his sons did to Israel. You know, they were priests before God, and they were doing all manner of evil. And you can go back and read back down through uh, some of what we'd skipped over there, and it talks about in more detail some of the things they were doing. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it mentions some of that here, as we're reading in verse 22. It says that they were laying with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so, notice in verse 23, he he sets out to, to make some correction here with his sons. It says, he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. He says, no, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the, the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? But it says, nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And so it would seem that Eli, even though he had made a warning, he didn't actually take any action to you know, get them out of their position or to uh, physically restrain them from doing these things. Uh, he, he spoke up, which was noble, but then they, they just didn't listen to him. And you look there in verse 27, it says, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the 
offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? So now Eli is being rebuked because while he made some degree of effort, he didn't actually follow through to the point where he was, like we said, putting an end to this wicked behavior of his sons. Down in verse 34, as the consequences are being explained to Eli, it says, This shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Now you jump over to chapter 4 and we see where, of course, these things played out just as the man of God had foretold. In chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, it says the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent and there was a very great slaughter. And there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And also the ark of God was captured. And notice it says that the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died there on that day. So these terrible consequences befall these two wicked men. But again, we see an example here of one who made a degree of effort. He, he had the right intentions, but again... I didn't follow through all the way like he ought to have, to have done. The final example that I thought of was Pilate, jumping over to the New Testament. We know, of course, that Pilate played a significant role in the events that led to Jesus being crucified. We know, of course, also that that was all part of God's plan of redemption. Uh, but nonetheless, I think we can see this same type of thing playing out with Pilate, the same kind of mentality where, you know, to a degree he is noble and he recognizes, you know, this man has no sin. You know, he makes some degree of effort to get him released, even though the Jews are screaming for him to be crucified. Uh, but ultimately he caves to the pressures of, you know, the politics that were going on at that time, worrying about his job and his position of power and what was going to happen if he continued to persist in trying to keep Jesus from being killed. So we're going to read a portion of uh, the text here starting in John 18. We're going to pick up in verse 28, read down through verse 38. And then we're going to jump over to Matthew's account because uh, the very last two verses there that are uh, that we have in John 18 are, are fleshed out a little bit or in a little bit greater detail in Matthew's account. So we'll jump over and read that. Then we're going to come back to John 19 and read a, another portion of the text here. So John 18, verse 28, it says, They led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. It was early morning, uh, but they themselves did not go into the Praetorium lest they should be defiled but that they might eat the Passover. So Pilate then went out to them and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. So they dodged the question, in other words. Pilate says, Will you take him and judge him according to your law? 
Therefore the Jews said, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, uh, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Again, uh, we see how God's will is, is being played out here through these actions of these evil men. So Pilate entered the praetorium again. He called Jesus and said, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. For this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said, I find no fault in him at all. Now, put your marker there, and let's come over here to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to notice verses 15 through 26 here in Matthew's account. It says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. So, you think, you know, try and get into the mind of Pilate here and understand where he's coming from and what his strategy is. He wants to see Jesus released because he recognizes, you know, this guy hasn't done anything. That Jews are just envious of, of who he is and what he's done and the following he's, he's accumulated for himself and they just want him out of the way. They're worried about their own power. So he thinks, well, you know, we've got this just terrible guy that's in prison, this murderer. Surely nobody's going to want him released, especially uh, in light of the alternative, which would be Christ. And so he's thinking, well, this is my way to get out of this whole situation. I'll, I'll put up this just terrible guy, and surely they won't ask for him in light of uh, releasing Christ. So verse 19, picking back up, it says, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife said to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So even his wife is being affected, and um, through these dreams she's having, understanding that uh, Jesus is innocent. But it says that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. You have to try and, you know, I, I picture Pilate just kind of like stunned, right? <laughs> what? Did I hear you right? Pilate says, What then shall I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? 
But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. They, they never answer his question. <laughs> he asks them the question several times throughout the whole process, and they, they just demand for his death. And it says that when Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather that this tumult was rising, we might say a, a riot, he took water and notice it says he washed his hands before the multitude. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And so the people answered and they said, his blood shall be upon us and our children. And so he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged, Jesus delivered him to be crucified. Now, come back over here to chapter 19 of John. And again, we find now, as far as this point in the narrative, uh, a little bit more detail from John's account. So, picking up there, verse 1 of John 19, it says, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, as we just read. And additionally, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put on him a purple robe, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with their hands. And Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him. Crucify him. You know, at this point, again, uh, trying to get into the mind of Pilate, he's probably thinking, well, if they see him with this crown pressed into his scalp, you know, his back's been torn open through this scourging, Certainly, they're going to be a little bit more empathetic at this point and say, hey, that's enough. That's enough punishment. You know, we're satisfied, right? But they weren't satisfied. So Pilate said, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And the Jews answered, we have a law according to our law. He ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid and went again to the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus said, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And from then on, again, we see Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out. And notice what they say. Now they're, they're playing politics with, with Pilate. If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So now they're saying, look, if you don't do what we're asking you to do, then we're going to tell Caesar what you did, how you are uh, aligning yourself with this other king, and you're going to be in, in serious trouble. And so Pilate, therefore, when he heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement. And it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? But the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him into their hands to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. As an aside there, uh, Dave and his family, Julie had to be at work 
uh, today, and that's why they left early. Uh, he told me beforehand, so they weren't mad at anything I was saying up here. But we see here another example of what we're talking about this morning, don't we? Where you have somebody, we might say he was a noble person because he was certainly trying to do the right thing, but ultimately uh, he caved under the pressures that were being put upon him, and he, he didn't follow through, did he? And so as we begin to make some final application and, and lead ourselves to a conclusion, uh, let's think about ourselves. We've looked at these examples, but ask yourself, am I apathetic in regards to my faith in Christ or, or do I have integrity? Do I do the right thing regardless of what I'm being threatened with? Or what bad thing might happen to me if I persist in doing what is right? And there's several examples, of course, just in addition to the ones we've noticed that we might consider here that I think directly have application to you and I today. You come back here to John chapter 12 and look at verses 42 and 43 with me there. And we're told that even among the rulers, many believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Lest, notice, they should be put out of the synagogue. And it says that they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we read about individuals who, they believed in Jesus. They knew that he was teaching them the truth, but they were more concerned with, well, what are these other people going to say if we decide to to pledge our allegiance to him. And so they they did not. We can come over here to Luke chapter 7. Now this is in context of John the Baptist at this time was preparing the way for Christ. And part of his ministry, of course, you know, people were being baptized by him as a baptism of repentance in preparation for uh, the baptism of Christ that was to come. And I want us to notice here in Luke chapter 7 and verse 30, really we could back up to verse 29 because it, it makes the point even more significant. Uh, it says, When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So these things were going by uh, or were happening even back at the time of the teaching of John, before people were expected to follow the very Son of God. You know, sometimes, you know, people might not do the right thing because they, they just lack the information. But uh, come over here with me to, to Acts chapter 19. I think we, we see a powerful example here. In Acts 19, we'll look at the first seven verses there. It says it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Well, into John's baptism. So this kind of directly correlates with that other verse we just noted where some had rejected John's baptism altogether because they 
did not want to submit to God's will. Well, here's some that, that had done that. But now notice Paul is, is further enlightening them about what is correct, what is the truth, what should they do. Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. And when they heard this, notice they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They recognized, oh, you know, here we thought we were men and, and women of integrity. We're, we're doing our very best, but now we understand that there's something we yet lack. And so they follow through and they, they do what is necessary. They're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We understand, of course, that that is what puts us into Christ. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27 is what forgives us of our sins. Acts 2, verse 38. And Paul, at that point, laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. It tells us there were 12 of them in all. As we think about integrity, you know, I, I can't help but, again, go back to the story of Joseph. He's such a powerful example to us of somebody who was committed to doing the right thing even when he had immense pressure put upon him to do the wrong thing. And you recall when he was in Potiphar's household, he'd been put in charge of all the house, and there was this occasion where nobody else was around, and Potiphar's wife, who'd taken a liking to him, she, she tries to seduce him. And that kind of thing happens today, right? People are all alone. Well, who's going to know? Who's going to find out? And people often give in to those kinds of temptations. But Joseph, he resisted it. And notice here with me, chapter 39 of Genesis. We'll read verses 6 through 12, or kind of halfway through verse 6. It says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on him. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. He's committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in the house than I. Nor has he kept anything back from me except for you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, that none of the other men were inside. And she caught him by his garment. She said, lie with me. But notice he leaves his garment in her hand and flees and runs out of the house. It takes a lot of mental fortitude to, to resist those kinds of temptations. But Joseph was committed to doing the right thing regardless of the situation. He didn't cave to the pressures that were put upon him in that scenario. And as silly as he may have looked running out of the house without his garment, he, he did it anyway because he knew what was right. Uh, we often cite the example of Joshua. Over here in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15 there. Joshua speaking to the people, he says, Therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, well then choose for yourselves this day whom you're going to serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods 
of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. All right, we see his commitment to doing what was right. In James chapter 4 and verse 17, a verse that we often cite, where James made the statement there that to him who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. What about us? Do we fail to do the right thing at times because we're worried about what someone might think or what someone might say or someone making fun of us or persecuting us? Over here in Hebrews chapter 6, you know, we talked about Pilate and how he had a, a hand ultimately in Jesus being crucified. And sometimes we might think, well, that's a pretty unique situation to have been in, but I want us to notice something over here in Hebrews chapter 6. Now here he's talking about somebody who has become a Christian, who's tasted of all that God has to offer, the hope of eternal life, and then this person turns against that, and they, they go back to, to sinful things once again. And notice the language that is used to describe this process here. Verse 4, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit have tasted the good uh, word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since, notice, they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and they put him to an open shame. You see there, the Hebrew writer is trying to help us understand when we willfully neglect to do what we ought to do, or we willfully choose to do what we know we shouldn't do, then it is if we are the ones that are shouting, crucify him. We are the ones nailing those nails into his hands and his feet and putting him right back on that cross to an open shame. And so these are things we need to consider as we go from day to day. Are we men and women who are apathetic or are we men and women who have integrity and do what is right regardless of the cost? I'd like us to close with one final example in Daniel chapter 3. You recall here the story where Nebuchadnezzar had set up this great golden image and he commanded all the land to, at certain times of each day, to fall down and worship this idol. And three of the Jewish captives, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused. And they were brought before the king, and he was basically threatening them. You know, he, he rather liked these guys, but now he was a little upset with them because they didn't want to do what he commanded. And he made the statement just in the, the verse preceding the one we're going to start with here, you know, who is the God that will deliver you if you do persist in your determination to not do what is what I've commanded. But it says that they answered and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have really no need to answer you in this matter. If, if that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if he chooses not to, and this is the most remarkable thing, I think, here in this example, but if not, let it be known. Even if 
God sees fit to allow us to die in that fiery furnace, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship this golden image that you have set up. You see the integrity that they had. Even in light of this terrible, painful death, they were determined to do what was right. And of course, we know that God did deliver them through that fire. This morning, if there is anyone here who, as you analyze your own life, recognize perhaps deficiency and perhaps you would like to come forward and ask for prayers this morning, prayers to be strengthened and to be more what you ought to be as you go from day to day, we'd love to pray with you. If you're here and you've never put on Christ in baptism, never become a Christian, never stepped away from your apathy about what God's will is for you and embraced that will uh, to live for Him and to look forward to being with Him for all eternity, we would stand ready to assist you in that as well. We have waters that are ready here to immerse you for the forgiveness of your sins if that is your need. Whatever it might be, we would ask that you'd simply make those things known to us uh, by coming up to the front at this time while we stand together and sing the song that our brother has chosen.